Welcome back to America Speaks. I am delighted to once again be in conversation with Maria Jose Mendez and Kim Langbacker for part two of our very powerful discussion on the violence that these migrant families are fleeing from in Central America. Last time, we were beginning to discuss extortion and the threat that these families are facing from the gang warfare in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. What faces these migrants living in this war zone of Central America is far more complicated than most of us in the United States are aware of. Can you explain to our audience what goes into the decision-making of these mothers, of these families, when they decide that they can't survive anymore living under this violence? Before people migrate to the United States, many people relocate their residences to another place within the same country. So the first move is not, you know, let's go to the United States. People who go to the United States, and and I'm not saying everyone, right? But a lot of people who go in some ways have resources in the sense that, you know, either there is a family member in the United States who can help them along the way or who might be able to receive them. I carried out research on the phenomenon of displacement. And so I interviewed people who had been internally displaced. So the term is IDP, internally displaced peoples. I'll give you one example. So I went and visited this family who had recently relocated to a farm. And this was outside of uh, the city of San Salvador. And this was a family that used to live in, in Sonsonate, in another part of the country. And where they lived, the community was controlled by the 18th Street Gang or Barrio 18. And the family had been paying uh, extortions, so had been paying $20 a month and a small amount of meat to the gang. So they had done this monthly for three years. I'll call the man that I interviewed, Don Jaime, and the woman, uh, Doña Marta. So, so Don Jaime and Doña Marta, they grew pigs, they butchered pigs, you know, and that's what they did. They had cornfields. Um, they were peasants in this community. Um, so for three years, they, they paid the gangs because in some ways they could still manage to do that. Um, at some point, the, the leader of this gang uh, dies and the new leader calls Don Jaime and says, you need to deliver $5,000. And if you don't do that, your head is going to roll and your kids are going to play with it in your backyard. So better get that money. Don Jaime didn't have that amount. So what did he do? He negotiated. He called the leader and told him, you know, all I can do is kill a pig, give you $200. That's what I can do right now. So the the hyena or the, the, the gang's wife, uh, she picks up the money but three days later, the leader calls and tells him that he has to find that money. And Don Jaime says, well, I'll have to face the consequences because I don't have that money and I can't go anywhere else. And then the leader offers a solution or a way out. And that is that Don Jaime act as a poste or as a, as a watchman in Central America, especially in El Salvador, where the gang population is very big. Territories are controlled by gangs. And to go in or out, you need to ask them for permission. You know, there's people watching who comes in, who comes out. So they wanted Don Jaime to be part of that structure, to watch who came in, who came out. And he refused. 
he said he would never do that. And so he basically had to live there for three months in total fear, right? He would go pick up his kids from school. Uh, he bought a gun and they had to take all these kinds of measures when chronic fear becomes a, a way of life. And they stayed there for three months until they were able to relocate to a different place. And so I met them at the farm where they had relocated. And I asked him, right, did you ever think, you know, why didn't you leave for the U.S.? And he said, well, I have five kids. I couldn't live without them. So, you know, it had to find another place in the country, which is very difficult because gangs are networks mm -hmm. and they have eyes in the whole country. And so where I met him, I mean, he was still in fear that the gang would find him because he had left without paying the extortion demands. You know, violence is a constant, but illicit economies in the region in some ways are very much linked. One could say that they're more recent phenomena, the economy of extortion, which is one of the big reasons why people are leaving these countries. They just can't pay the gangs, and if they can't pay the gangs, the gangs will kill them. Can I interrupt for a second to find out where, if at all, the military, the paramilitary or the government is? Yes, of course. And that's maybe the one important piece that I forgot to mention from Jaime's story. It's that Don Jaime, he had a cousin who was a policeman. And the very first time he got an extortion demand, he went to him and he asked for his advice. And the police officer who was his cousin told him, just do not report this to the police. You don't know who might be working with them. Mm. And, and I mentioned this because something that I found uh, when I was doing research in Central America was that the extortion economy is, doesn't just involve the gangs and people who collaborate with them. So the money collectors who tend to be minors, who tend to be women, and who are not necessarily gang members. But the most people actors in this web of extortions are those who have a foot in the legal and in the illegal world and the ones who are sending orders from the top of the ladder. And these include so many of the people I was talking to. They mentioned how there were collaborations with state actors, with elites. This is obviously this kind of nebulous group of powerful figures that includes everything from government officials, business elites, police and military officers from uh, various ranks. And, you know, usually these connections and these these clandestine links, when one mentions them, you know, people think that, oh, it's pure fantasy or it's conspiration theory. But what I found uh, talking to former gang members and then to, to people who live in neighborhoods controlled by um, gangs and who have left these places is that these collaborations are not unusual. Mm -hmm. And uh, you will have politicians, for instance, former MS-13 member I talked to, he said that a well-known TV businessman and politician came to his neighborhood to collect extortion money and to talk to the leaders and also give them extortion orders. Obviously, to investigate them is dangerous because they're supposed to be clandestine. Some of these clandestine links have, have surfaced in national news. Mm -hmm. um, there have been just people who are not gang members who have been linked to these economies. And like one quick example is since 2000, 
2011, there has been this uh, National Depuration of Police Officers in Honduras. And I think about 80 police officers were charged uh, with collaborating with, with MS-13. I mean, this is not just people talking about it. It has been documented by journalists. And that's very risky to expose this. You're putting your life, you're putting your family's life in danger. Were you ever concerned for your safety while you were interviewing? I probably should have been, but I wasn't. <laughs> I'm not a journalist, right? And and I think that really journalists are the ones who are on the line of fire. You know, they don't anonymize things. I, in my work, I can anonymize things and I do because of the risks involved. Uh, but journalists are exposing these things. You know, they're giving out names. And they live in these countries. I, for one, cannot understand how any American citizen could look at these asylum seekers with any negative connotation to their plight if they had a true understanding of what was going on there. Your perspective, Maria, is is really critical because when you don't come from a place that has violence, that has lack of economic opportunity, it's very easy to say things like, well, why would any mother you know, take their children through the desert. Well, you've just said why any mother would take their children through the desert. I think you're really speaking about the power that this whole discourse about legality and illegality has in, in the United States. You know, in some ways, it's a distinction that really abstracts from that depoliticizes, right? I mean, that abstracts from the realities that people are facing. I, I just recently read this article by Peter Andreas, and uh, he talks about how the United States citizens have uh, historically violated border laws. <laughs> and he's talking right about the rise or the construction of the, the U.S. nation state and how that was predicated on the violation of laws, right? Westward expansion, colonists violating laws, smugglers going into Mexico and not uh, obeying border laws. So, you know, in some ways, it's either part of the strategy that he seems to posit in, in that article is to point really how illegality and legality is a construction that if we were to, you know, scrutinize the history of the United States with the same language and with the same discourse that we scrutinize migrants, we would find that, you know, we're being very incoherent. We have a double standard all the time. I mean, we just turn our back on how we have violated the law. One thing that I've noticed, I think at some point, uh, Republican politicians, they drew very bright line between, you know, what is illegal immigration and then legal immigration, you know, and, and they tended to think about illegal immigration as this thing they you know, they, they hate it. And, and then the legal one was was really good, right? They love that. But I think that now this distinction has really been replaced. I think it's not so much about legal, illegal. I mean, if, if you remember, for instance, when one of Trump's speech, right, when he, he wasn't focusing on illegal immigration, he was focusing on the country of origin of immigrants. And so this is when he says, you know, Mexico was not sending their best people. They were sending drugs, criminals, and, you know, people coming from South and Latin America, from the Middle East, country of origin that mattered. So it wasn't a matter of legality or illegality. It was a racializing move. It was to say these are non-white, uh, sometimes non-Christian. It was not a matter of legality or illegality. And so I think that maybe what we're seeing is very much a racist discourse. 
For its part, the U.S. Congress has proposed little in the way of addressing the root causes of Central American immigration, focusing instead on speeding up the deportation process and spending more on border security. There's no silver bullet to the Central American immigration crisis, but one thing seems certain. As long as families and young people continue to live in fear of murder and deprivation, illegal migration will continue no matter how quickly the U.S. deports people. That audio clip was taken from Murder and Migration in Honduras, a documentary segment on Vice News. When chronic fear becomes a way of life, desperation forces those who are left with no options to face the brutal journey north, even though these families are aware of the impossible odds of finding the safety they are looking for in the United States. I have said this before in regards to our place in this cruelty. We need to decide what kind of country we want to be and what we will stand up for. I hope our two-part episode with Maria Jose Mendez has given you a greater understanding of the trauma these families are fleeing from. I want to thank you so much, Maria. I want to, first of all, ask you if anybody out there has any questions for you, how would they reach you? They can send me an email to mende184 at umn.edu. So it is M-E-N-D-E, mende184 at umn.edu. That's my university address. From that, I say America Speaks thanks you so much for the work you are doing. And it's just been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Tish, for having me and Kim. If you have protested for anything in the past 18 years, you very well may be in my book, I Protest. Please go to my website, tishlampert.org, that's www.tishlampert.org, and see if you can find yourself in my book. You can also follow me on Twitter, at tishlampertcom, that's at T-I-S-H-L-A-M-P-E-R-T-C-O-M. And find me on Instagram, T-I-S-H underscore L-A-M-P-E-R-T underscore O-R-G. And I want to invite everyone to go to Tish Lampert's America Speaks on Apple Podcasts, where you can find our archived episodes. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz, Oscar Batista, and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at americaspeakspodcast at gmail.com and tell us what you thought of today's episode and come back for our next episode of America Speaks. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. (laughs) 